Hello and welcome to Words in a Time of Lockdown, a series of podcasts from the writer's block Cornwall looking at creativity and creative writing through a time of change. The writer's block is the creative writing centre for Cornwall where we champion the writer in everyone. I am Polly Roberts, a writer and member of the Writer's Block team, and I'll be talking with Cornwall-based writers who worked with us through summer 2020. We hope you find some inspiration and wisdom in what you hear. In today's podcast, I will be speaking with novelist, lecturer and literary consultant Will Menmuir. Will runs workshops with us at the Writer's Block and in summer 2020 ran our online masterclass, Kickstarting Fiction. His novel, The Many, was nominated for the Man Booker Prize and his latest book will be released in 2021. This autumn, Will is running our Teachers as Writers workshop where he will be offering parents and teachers the creative tools to inspire a love of writing in their young people. Hi, Will, and thank you for joining me today. It's um, a lovely sunny day in Cornwall. I'm guessing it's still a lovely sunny day where you are in Cornwall. It is lovely. Um, and I've just come in from painting the house. Um, so I'm covered in paint. Oh, lovely. What colour? Uh, it is white paint. It's the the external walls of my house needed painting. And so it's very, very boring. But actually, because we're going to be talking about creativity, I think there is a connection between painting walls and being creative. Anyway, I will come to that later. Oh, good. I'm interested to hear that. And you've answered my question that was burning, which was what activities I'd pulled you away from, because I know that you seem to wear multiple hats in your life. So I was very curious about which one you'd been wearing just before this and where I'd breaking you away from. <laughs> painter and decorator. Um, painter and decorator. And also I, I've had my first commission for making someone a spoon um so on saturday i'm going to briar on the isles of silly for a family holiday and somehow i think i was posting pictures of the spoons i've been carving in lockdown um a rather wonderful lady called ruth eggins who is a writer and artist and farmer on briar got in touch and said i really want one of your spoons and i said well, i don't really make spoons for other people and she said go on and i said go on then okay i will i'll make you some salad spoons and she has agreed to paint me a picture and we're going to exchange them next week so i've been working on salad spoons and how does it feel to um have created something different like something for someone else instead of for yourself um well so that's actually so my my spoons project is all about creating things for other people the spoons aren't really for me um they are very imperfect uh rough approximations of spoons really um but i think they're rather lovely and i like making them so i'm at the moment i'm making spoons for my family for their christmas presents um, my sister-in-law has asked for one for her birthday and then obviously I've today I've been working on Ruth's spoons and it is all sorts of um, entertaining and satisfying um, to make something for someone else. Mm. So do, do you bring that into your writing as well? Do you say when you write that you're writing for someone else or is that something that you do just for yourself? Oh that's a very good question. Um I I guess it depends what draft I'm on. If my first draft tends to be me telling myself 
a story that I want to hear. Um, or if not a story I want to hear, a story I haven't read before. And then subsequent drafts, I sort of turn my attention from being a writer to being a reader and look at it, try and look at it in the way a reader will look at it. And um, and so, yeah, so I, I tend, I, I don't tend to write for a specific person, but I tend to write for a reader a little bit like me. Okay, right. So it's kind of a slight gift to yourself, but there is an element of having someone else in mind whilst creating. Uh, yeah, and I mean, it's so much of it is kind of out of my control, really. Um, I can control the words, obviously, um, for the most part. And then when the book goes out into the world, really, you've got no control over anything. Um, I think uh, there was one of the Greek philosophers, and I can't remember which one it was, said that um, the written world word is like a child who's sent out into the into the world on its own without its parents to defend it, and which was why dialogue is better than writing, or dialogue is better than text. Um, and to an extent, I kind of agree because sometimes people will pick things up in your work and say, oh, it's definitely about this. And you, th- you think, well, no, it's not about that in the slightest, but it is for you. It's interesting for me. I very much write from the beginning for myself. It's something that I can't help that just comes out of me and that I then want to explore further for my own reasons. Mm. But like you're saying, at some point it becomes for others. But then there is this interesting other transformation stage where once it's out there, you have no control over what it means for anybody anymore. Yeah. And then the nicest thing, I think I was talking to a friend about this the other day, actually, was um, is when is when someone gets in touch and says says something you've written either sort of touched me in some way or or affected me or made me think about the world in a slightly different way and I'm really lucky in that I got I I've, I've got a few letters from people that they've sent I've got a lovely letter from someone in um Australia um a couple of years ago someone who picked the book up and and just wanted to get in touch to say that the book meant something to them. So I suppose there's all sorts of things that you don't intend that are really lovely that come out of the other end. Uh, uh, on the mm. other side, that you know, you get people who say, I absolutely hate it, it's the worst thing I've ever read. Um, and you can't really control that either. And how do you feel when you get these differing responses? Do you, I mean, obviously it must be nice when you hear that it's been moving or positive, but does it affect you when you hear that someone hasn't enjoyed it? Um, so my my well, my first real experience of that was just after after the many came out. Um, didn't really get many reviews. I got a couple of blog reviews, and then when it got longlisted for the Booker, it um, I got all of these reviews in all the big papers, which was lovely. And the Guardian loved it. And then the Observer reviewed it the next week and they loved it. And then the Times reviewed it the next week and they hated it. (laughs) And they hated it so much. They gave me a whole page of how much they hated it. Um, And I remember picking opening the paper and my editor had texted me and said, look, there is a review in the Times. (laughs) I don't think you're going to be 100% happy with it. And so I opened it with a bit of trepidation, read it, and there were some things that I thought were very unkind, such as um, she, I think the reviewer was talking about how um, the dialogue was very Scooby-Doo, which I thought was a bit harsh. But anyway, <laughs> so I gave myself um, 
I gave myself half an hour to rant and to swear in the garden very, very loudly. And then I came in, composed myself and sat down and I wrote the, um, wrote the reviewer a little email saying, I appreciate that you didn't particularly like the book, but thank you so much for reviewing it. And since then we've kind of had a bit of back and forth, um, and have made friends. Um, but I, 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 I'm trying to be grown up about bad reviews. I, 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 I try not to read too much on Goodreads or Amazon because I think if you get someone who goes, it's terrible, it was just far too short, and, or it was, it was terrible, the cover had a crease on it. Um, and I think you can get upset about all sorts of things. And I think there are probably bigger things to get upset about. Do, what about you? Yeah, well, I guess one of the big things to learn is is that you can't write the book for everybody. And so when you're part of creating and putting it out, there is learning to accept that it, it is that child that you were discussing earlier that's wandering free and, and going to be picked up. It's vulnerable, but it's going to be picked up and uh, raised differently by whoever meets it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sounds quite scary, doesn't it? <laughs> for some reason, that reminds me, I think... Doesn't doesn't Jean-Jacques Rousseau do that in his confessions? He basically gives up his children and says, "Well, gone the state. You look you look after them and raise them however you see fit because you'll do a much better job than me." Um, Does I, he? I, I and wish, how do they I, turn out? I've got no idea. Probably pretty screwed up. Um, <laughs> I imagine. I mean, just having said that, I thought, why on earth would I do that with my words? No. <laughs> I can raise them myself. I'm going to keep it all to myself from now onwards. No one will ever read them again because they might be misinterpreted and people, yeah, people might not do nice things to them. But, so yeah, exactly. absolutely. Let's, right, let's never publish anything ever again. Okay, it's a pact. Um, so I'm curious about how then it would be when once you give your spoons away, do you mind how people receive those or is it similar <laughs> uh no so my spoons the, one of the reasons i like doing spoons is because um is because i can i can carve a spoon in an evening um and it's quite quick it's quite satisfying in a way that writing isn't because once i've done it it's finished whereas i'll mess with a piece of writing for weeks and weeks and months and it, with a, in the case of a novel years and a spoon is kind of like done in a couple of hours, and mm. once it's once I've put the um, the finish on it, that's it. I can send it out into the world, and then people can misuse it all they want. I don't really care. Um, but I want. Right. I think. I think where the spoons thing came from is, I think like a lot of people during lockdown, I felt like the world was quite out of control for me. I wasn't able to influence much around me because we were all in lockdown um weren't able to go out weren't able to go and do the things we would normally do um lots of my lots of the contracts that i had all of a sudden disappeared and i was feeling a bit sort of oh what's you know what's happening like an awful lot of people um right. and then my wife bought me a spoon carving knife on uh, our anniversary and i sat at the table in my dressing gown after breakfast and carved a spoon and then the next thing was it was lunchtime and I'd got a finished spoon in my hand and I felt really pleased with that because it was something that I had complete control over. Mm, so it, it really was some a creative activity for this time it, it served its purpose. Yeah exactly and in fact I, I call them my lockdown spoons um, they right. are uh, so I've got a, a jar of them waiting to go out into the world 
and, and and be released. Actually, I've got another plan. Um, once I've done all of the ones for uh, my family, based on this um, this idea I had with with Ruth exchanging a um, exchanging a painting for a spoon, I was going to make a little website about my lockdown spoons and offer to give anyone who is in any way creative a spoon in uh not in response to in exchange for something creative so maybe a little knitted something or maybe a poem or maybe a um i don't know a sign if a sign writer wants to do it and because one of the things that i've really enjoyed in lockdown is swapping things um i swapped a bit of one of my guitars for a um for a handcrafted um, leather-bound copy of my first novel, which was lovely because the person who was buying it didn't have the money that I was asking for the guitar, but he said, I'll give you this much. And then I found out he was a bookbinder, brilliant, talented guy called Tom O'Reilly. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll accept a lower offer and a bound book. And I'm far more pleased with the bound book than I am with the money. Interesting. Do, is that in part, do you think, because of the fact that it came as an exchange rather than... Yeah, I think so. Yeah, something as you wanted. I quite like I quite like the idea of going back to a sort of bartering culture. Um, not for everything, but uh, it just pleases me that people are doing creative things and also value creative things. Like I, I, I say, it takes me a couple of hours to do a spin. Actually, it takes me more about, more like for four or five or six hours um so it does take me quite a long time and quite a lot goes into it so in a way i feel that it's if if someone is prepared to say well give me a small painting or something like that in exchange for it i'd rather do that than selling a spoon it's yes i mean i think there's something about art isn't there where it's it's undervalued often monetarily and so this idea of how much time goes into it doesn't often equate to how much money comes out of it. Um, or at least I know that with my own writing. Whereas if you do an exchange with something as creative, you know that it's it's had a lot of love and a lot of energy and a lot of time put into it. Exactly that. Yeah, definitely. So it's interesting because I've also found for me during lockdown, let's say, um, but still now that a lot of my relationship to different creative forms have has changed or new ones have come in and um and I'm curious so when you were talking about this spoon carving and all of a sudden it it arriving into your hands this this ability to try a new form and how it it dealt with what you needed at the moment which was something that you could control and actually create quite quickly mm. um do you feel like that with a lot cuz I like I said you're a man with many hats do you feel that you go between all of your roles or different activities to serve different purposes for you uh yeah definitely um if i'm in a sort of healthy place yes uh i'll go from different things to different things um but i think I, th- I don't know i think i think the spoon carving thing is about more about connecting with people because i felt quite profoundly disconnected um i'm someone who needs other people around i'm not the sort of writer who can just sit on my own in a, a locked office all day. I mean, I can do to an extent because that's the job, 
But if I did that all the time, it would drive me mad. And I think that's why I need to do lots of different sorts of things. So I've been, I've been maybe redressing the balance a little bit, partly with connecting with people um, through making things that I'm then going to give away, or I'm then going to swap with something some, uh, with someone else, or maybe connecting with people through different art forms. So my writing hasn't been going very well. I've I found it very, very difficult to write during lockdown. I found it mm. in even more difficult to read. I've, not, I've, I've got very little concentration at the moment. And this is really difficult for me because I've always been a reader and I've always read quite voraciously. Um, I will al- I'm almost always have a big stack of books on my desk, which I'm, which I'm currently going through. And I do have a stack of books on my desk, but they're, to a large extent, they're the same ones that were there at the beginning of March, um, right. which shows me I haven't really been reading um, anywhere near as much as I would have recently. Whereas what I have been doing is I've been dabbling with photography. Um, I've been, um, oh, at the weekend, I went and built a hand plane to do body surfing with. And so trying out different sorts of skills. And do they bring you different things, each one? Or? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think I think there is something about making things with your hands um, right, that yes. is very very satisfying, and I think it, in a in a way it's like a balance to words. So, I was chatting with the poet Holly Caulfield Carr um, a few months ago, and she balances her poetry with uh, carpentry, and and I thought that was quite fascinating. That there are other people out there who obviously feel this need for some sort of a similar sort of balance. I don't know. Do you, as as a poet, do you have the same sort of sort of need, or is that not there? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I I used to paint a lot when I was younger, and then at some point, I I, I did a lot of textiles as well, and started jewelry making at one point. And I've kind of gone through all of these various things that use my hands, and then yeah, at some stage, thought, no, I'm a writer. I've got to concentrate on this one thing, and I think that's something we're often taught or told Mm. where you create your professional thing and and if you decide that you're going to use your art form for that then you focus on the art form and then you can be a writer and during lockdown I actually picked up my paintbrushes again and I just thought why did I ever stop this and I so I then moved on to starting to make jewelry again and I think a huge part of it to me was that it stopped it uses a different part of my brain it doesn't have me thinking and I'm not Mm. uh, consciously trying to create. I just, I drop into a different way of creativity and, and I I think does actually support my writing in the end. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely think so. Mm. I mean, I think with the, uh, even with doing things like painting, painting, uh, painting a wall, painting a long wall white is, it's quite a mindless or maybe, I don't know, mindless, mindful Mm. thing to do in that actually I can do quite a lot of thinking while I'm painting a wall yeah, or even just mulling stuff over so that when I go back to the desk, instead of just banging my head against the desk going, Oh, I've got to write something really good, uh, which is never productive. And yet I do more often than not. Um, it isn't necessarily the best way to do it. I know that the best way to do it is to go out for a walk and when I come back from the walk, I'll always have something to write. Do you reach a certain point where you know what I need now is a walk or a swim or a surf? Or- yeah, I'd, well, so it depends. 
those or each of those activities is quite different. So if a walk will be, if I get stuck in a plot point or if I get stuck with it, cause I'm at, so I'm editing at the moment and I'm, uh, um, I'm editing my second novel and, um, and I've got to the point where I just don't know. I've got one of two or three or five or 10 ways that I could take the edit and I just don't know which is right. So I, w- I will take myself out for some long walks and actually talk to myself out loud. Um, so I tend to go where people aren't. Um, although I've been doing it so long now, you kind of don't notice when people are walking towards you and you realise that you've just walked past someone and you've been talking out loud about things that, <laughs> and characters. That it happens. Exist. And so that happens quite a lot. Um, I've been doing this for quite a long time. Um, surfing is a treat. Um, surfing is a treat that I give myself every um, sort of milestone. So if I hit a 10,000 word mark or 20,000, 30,000, 30,000, especially I'll take myself out for a, for a surf and then maybe even a beer after a surf. Ooh. I mean, you, you did mention this in, um, because you wrote some writer's prompts for us this summer. (laughs) And one of them was thinking of a treat that you would promise yourself at the end of a task. So that is something that you do actually practice, is it to get you through certain things? Yeah, absolutely. Um, because partly because when you're writing a novel, it's so big that almost it's, it's too difficult to see the end. So, I've got to find like milestones that I can celebrate. Otherwise I feel like I'm making these endless incremental changes, which I can't, it's not like making a spoon where I can make a knife cut and I can see the change. I can play with a sentence for a whole day and then I might end up realizing at the end of the day that the original way I'd written it was best. (laughs) Um, And that's how, sort of granular I get with my writing (laughs) which is very I don't know it's quite a frustrating way to work and especially when you're working on something that's tens of thousands of words long each of those words matters to me um but Mm. you can't see I can't see the change especially if I'm editing and I'm not adding words it feels like this sort of I don't know is it is Sisyphean a, a, a way of describing it I guess so it's like you're yeah constantly pushing a load of little pebbles up a hill instead of one big boulder Mm. and when you turn your attention to one the other ones kind of all start rolling down the hill again you so it's not just pushing something up a hill you're pushing up something a load of things up a hill and then running down to catch all the things that keep falling (laughs) i mean a novel is an immense thing to be working through isn't it i've got about what have i i've got three drafts of novels in the drawer and and Every time I get to the end of an edit, I all I can think of is the multiple different changes that would have to come into the next edit and trying to face how do you do those all at once without, like you say, letting go of a million stones that start rolling away from you when you start creating those changes mm. can just be such a challenge. Uh, yes, definitely. Although, and it's quite difficult to take the advice yourself. I've spent quite a lot of lockdown giving other writers advice. Um, and you can own, I, I don't know, it's more dif- much more difficult to see in your own writing. What I would say to another writer who was having the same thing would be to run a sort of uh, triage, um, like in an accident, accident and emergency ward, where you've got 
loads and loads of people coming in all the time with different sorts of illnesses and you say well okay i'm going to deal with the really big ones first the uh the road traffic accidents the broken legs and actually i'm going to come to the sort of split fingernails um but much later down the, the split fingernails are the um comma splices and tense imperfections or little typos right so it would be to fix the big plot points it'd be to fix the character um defects or um it would be to fix those big structural things does it does the story make sense and then sort of work your way down through really to mix metaphors here down through the grades of uh of sieve so you get the really small stones at the bottom which are your split fingernails to just to really mangle mangle that um metaphor this is a glorious image (laughs) uh yeah i don't uh, yeah it's sort of somewhere in between um a hospital and um prospecting for gold (laughs) i've got it i can see it clearly yeah Uh, so i'm curious you've so you've said that you've been editing your book but you've also just mentioned that you've been far more frequently offering advice during this time of lockdown. So yeah, what what hats have you been wearing throughout the last well since March? Oh, uh, lots and lots of different um lots of different hats. Um although probably not as many as I normally normally do. Um so while um the week of the week of lockdown my phone sort of rang off the hook. Oh, uh, well you know that thing we're going to do it's not that's not going to happen. And that was I mean I think that was the experience for so many people and especially um Especially freelancers, uh, or um, I mean, I, and I'm so, and it's certainly not a value judgment against any other type of work, but I know so many freelancers who just said exactly the same thing. I was, um, I had all of these things planned. I had had loads of things planned, and all of them sort of dropped off one by one by one over the course of course of a couple of days. And then I thought, oh well, okay, maybe no work will come in. However, I was quite lucky in that some of the work that I had been doing which was taking up a small proportion of my time started to take up more time so I've been doing some editing uh, some consultancy for a literary agency in uh, in London Curtis Brown who run um, uh, something called Curtis Brown Creative where people go on courses online courses and part of that is they get feedback from a from a novelist or a memoirist and I've been doing quite a lot of that work um which is great I love reading other people's work and I love being able to help them identify where they can make the biggest gains or where they might what they might not have thought about that from having written what I've, I've written three full novels now um the things that i've the things that i've learned um through going through those process that 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 process and do you find offering that advice again do you gain more for your own writing currently as well each time you go through the process Uh, no it doesn't it 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 is of no use whatsoever when it comes to your own writing because you are too close to your own writing editing your own work is i think is one of the hardest things it's horribly hard. Anyway, so I've been doing that. Um, I have been doing. I have been doing some writing actually, just not the writing that I expected to be doing. So I've been doing some writing for Nehi Theatre. Um, there is Nehi have got an an app called Walk with Me, which um, our very own Anna Marie Murphy um, was instrumental in setting up, I believe, and wrote lots of stories based on 
um, specific locations. So the idea is you go to a location with your uh, with your phone and your headphones on, and it the GPS triggers off a story when you get to the the start of the walk, and you follow a follow a set route, and you'll hear different stories set in that particular area. So I was asked if I'd be interested to go and talk to some people who had been shielding um, for in in the St. Austell Clays area um, to talk to them about their their lives and the stories that they have. And and I jumped at it partly because I just hadn't seen anyone for so long. And I was told, well, they hadn't either because they, so all of these people were members of a walking or walking groups or lunch clubs at, um, at Eden. And they obviously hadn't been able to go to those. So lots of them really hadn't seen many people apart from their carers or anyone who came in, the people who came to deliver their shopping and things like that. People who were in their sort of late 60s, 70s, 80s. I spoke to a brilliant lady who was in her mid 90s. And we sat in their gardens at sort of, I sat at one end, they sat at the other, and then we had um, had chats. And and that was a real privilege, is listening mm. to other people's stories is just such a privilege. And they were quite open with their stories as well. And then I went away and I made short pieces of fiction based on those. Um, so I, I, th- I, think, I think I wrote six or seven stories which have just gone live on the Walk With Me app. And then I've written um, another one with Nehi, which is a longer form story, um, which is a horror story set in St. Hostel, which is a collaboration with um, with Kieran Clark. Um, so Kieran um, is very much into binaural sound. So we wanted to explore what would happen if we wrote a horror story set in a particular place so again the idea is you go to a, this location you put your headphones in you start the um the, the the gps starts the story rolling and then you as you get further on into this little woodland in the middle of st hostel the story uh the story sort of switches up tempo and and gets it gets quite dark it's quite and, and, and you, you get all sorts of sound effects um, which are in the sort of binaural. I, I, I don't know. Kieran will explain it a lot better than me. But it, it kind of sound. You can you can place the sound. Um, so if if there's if there's footsteps, you can hear the footsteps behind you, and it really sounds as though someone is is, is following you. If you want to get that effect, um, which obviously is something that we did. That's incredible. I'm just curious because all of the um, all of what you've just mentioned, especially what you're working with knee high, has a lot to do with place and words within a certain place and I is something I'm interested in is whether Cornwall in particular has a relevance to your writing or an influence on it or whether place in general is important to you in a book yeah well lots of uh lots of my lots of my short stories are very much set in a particular location um they're set I mean the the the, the stories I've just written for Nehi obviously they they're, they're connected to particular villages in the clays um but I've done sort of other projects around we did a project last year around um Hall for Cornwall um or City Hall as was and and I I, I really enjoy um stories which are connected to a particular location um I suppose I like reading mm. them and I'm interested in writing them I did a similar project the year before on the Isles of Scilly where I spent I did a residency on St Martin's 
at the end of November. So I was one of the only people um, to visiting. I think I was for a few days, the only person on uh, visiting the island. It was great. I had it pretty much to myself. Wow. And, and, and again, just went around and talked to people about growing up um, on what it was to grow up on, not on an island, but on that particular island. What And I wanted to get across an idea of what makes St. Martin's St. Martin's. That was my big challenge to myself. Mm. And I think one one of the things with all of those, they were all meant for someone else to read as well. So you had another, you've got another person who, who kind of puts their spin on it, who reads those out. Right. And it's interesting to me because you mentioned it the beginning that something difficult about lockdown was not not lacking connection not seeing people so much and it sounds like actually a lot of story comes to you from that interaction from hearing other people's stories from speaking with people from being in a place and interacting with a place yeah I mean that's what I did with my first novel um I went I went to lots of small fishing villages and talked to not exclusively fishermen but um but the fishing community people who live in people who live in villages where the majority of the houses are second homes um or who live there and now no longer live there and and they're kind of visitors to the village where they grew up and i thought that was one of the things that i really wanted to get across in the book was the idea of people who are isolated from their homes um, or the place that they see as home because they can no longer afford to live there, frankly. Right. Um, even though the book itself isn't set in a particular village, um, it's set in a, a kind of imaginary space, um, right. which was important for the book. And the, and the book I've just, I'm, I'm writing at the moment, the one that I'm just finishing editing and is going to be released in March <gasps> next year, which is great. Um that that one is set in a totally imaginary city in a totally imaginary country right wow so it, but it's it it's built up of places that i already know right and do you do you sit in these places when you're writing it or do you always write at the computer at home. Uh, no, I, so I tend to write longhand in my notebook and that's the it, not the first draft but i I'll write lots and lots and lots of little notes and the little notes will kind of amalgamate into something bigger um, over over a long period of time. I'm a really, really slow writer. Um, so, but quite often I'll have two or three or four or five pages which are just full of notes of lots of different bits of the story because I tend to, I don't tend to work on one bit at once. I tend to work on lots of bits of the story all at once, because if something's happening in this particular moment, it's going to have a knock on effect in 60 pages. And I go, Oh no, that's going to happen there. And that's going to happen there. And so I, it's like, it's like making jigsaw pieces mm. for a puzzle that you don't quite know where the edges are yet. Right. So you've got to draw the whole, picture up all at once first so you can put it together yeah um yeah it's a it's a weird sort of process of kind of feeling your way through it um or do, do, how, how about you do you start out with a sort of fairly fixed idea of what it is you're going to write or no not at all and actually it's something I was going to ask you about because 
on your um, kickstarting for fiction masterclass that you ran for us, one of your exercises was to help get people to the heart of their story and to really discover what it is that you wanted to say and how you were going to say it and why you were going to say it and start writing from there. And when I did my master's in creative writing, I worked with Faye Weldon and she was very much about literally breaking your novel into one sentence before you even start your first page. Whereas my experience is that I write and I might have an idea, but really I am coming from a place of probably something I want to explore and however specific I get, it transforms as I go. Mm. And so I was curious about whether that is the same with you, that it transforms as you work through the book. Uh, yeah, I, I've got no idea what I'm writing until, I write, until I've written it. Right. So you've been editor for many people basically through this mm. time, and yet you were saying, oh, I can't bring that advice to myself. So I know you've just said your next book is coming out next March. Does that mean, have you had an editor working with you through this period to help you gain sight throughout yeah so my editor um so i i was i was i was quite lucky in that i met up with my editor in manchester um a few weeks before lockdown happened um and he gave me us we sat down and went through the manuscript together and he said here's here are the here are the small things and then we got to the end and he he's almost as almost as like an afterthought he said so well you know what's the um what's the central thread you know what you know what's what are you really getting at here because I think I'm not quite sure I understand this or this or this and it's those questions that help me to to go back and say well I I need to Mm. I need to do quite a lot of restructuring and I do believe that thing that you were saying about Faye Weldon and the and and that one line I believe that most novels probably there is there's never a case where where it's an all but most novels have one central have have a have, have a sort of heart that something that some piece of narrative truth that sits at the heart of every oh short story novel and it's only for the writer it's it, that one sentence so i when mm. i was editing the many i wrote down on a, on a post-it note um based on the advice of another novelist a guy called steve voke who um who was very kind with his time and his attention and he he was the one who said to me well tell it to me in one one sentence maximum one sentence and the first thing that came out of my mouth was well the many is a novel about one man's experience of grief and he said that's it he said write that down the post-it stick it above your desk and when you're editing you know what you're tilting at um you know what you're heading towards so if you find that you're what you're reading go strays too far from that you can start to question it does it really belong and i really believe that is one of the most useful pieces of advice i've ever been given so i give it to everyone um right i think it's probably the it's it's the problem i've had with my second book is was finding out what's at the heart of it i don't i don't believe you need to know it right at the beginning it's probably easier if you do but for me, mm. half the fun is writing to find out what it is. Mm. And you can't take that fun away from yourself. No, exactly. Um, and also, if I did, I think, because I did try to do that with one novel, and it came out a little bit formulaic. And I realized I wasn't that happy with it, because I don't want to be formulaic. I want to be fresh. I want it to mm. feel 
like I want to feel it to feel like it's not been I've not sort of sketched it out and now all I'm doing is painting by numbers um I've actually had that exact experience with the um the novella that I've been editing during this period I when I wrote the first draft I thought oh I'm gonna be genius here I'm gonna come up with my concept and my line and I'm gonna stick to it from the word go and when I came back to it I just couldn't help but keep adding all these different layers in because I realized I found it kind of flat having such a simple purpose throughout I could hear it in the words I could feel that I'd was too kind of full of intention for that one thing Mm. So you have been able to write during lockdown then? Wow, yeah, it's a good question. I I have really struggled to write anything new, to be honest. So I've been editing like you. And and I think as a writer, I don't know, I, I think as a writer we're quite used to having our different phases, or at least I find and I often speak to people who also feel as though there is this phase where you're just going out and looking for inspiration and actually it's okay to spend a whole week or even a month or even a year just talking to people or going for walks or mm. looking at art or staring outside and thinking about nothing. Yeah. Can you think about nothing? Um, but then then suddenly comes this flood where there's loads of words. But at the same time, I found it very disconcerting that at the start of lockdown when suddenly I had no weight of writing and it wasn't like there was no words or stories going on, but I just was really struggling to focus on the pen. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I, I definitely, yeah, I, I felt that way, especially at the beginning where all of a sudden maybe I did have a bit more time, um, but actually that time gets filled quite quickly with other things. Mm. There are certain things that need to happen. So I've been um, homeschooling my two children Um while all of this has been going on um throughout because so they haven't yet been back to school and that has been ta- that's taken up at least half of every every day and mm. and that i find getting that task switching from from teaching to purely concentrating on my own creative endeavors quite difficult mm. Yes. Do you have any tips on that? How you switch between or any rituals that you put in place? Um, coffee. Um, it normally involves drinking lots of coffee. <laughs> Although actually most things involve drinking lots of coffee. Um, I think it's, it, some of it is, is getting a change of scenery. So even if it's going into a different room or taking my notebook, so I've got a van and I might take my notebook and sit in the van. Um, Mm. Yeah, that's a big thing, isn't it? To suddenly be at home for every single activity. Yeah. Or or it can be as simple as going for a run or a walk and then sitting down to write. Um, Having said that, I have done a lot more functional functional writing. Um, I've done a lot more... So writing reports on other people's writing, I find I can do that and concentrate on it for hours and hours. Why do you think that is? Well, because concentrating on your own work takes a sort of 100% concentration in a, way that, in a way that other sorts of writing don't. Um, yeah. yeah, so I don't, I, I've just found that, found the actual writing 
bit really quite hard. And is that changing now, now that things are relaxing a little bit more potentially? Um, yeah, I'm, I've, I've gone back. So it, when things started to relax, that was when I started doing the knee high um, projects. So I would have been editing my novel if I wasn't, if, if I wasn't writing those. And what those projects reminded me is kind of the importance of playfulness and just, just thinking, oh, what if? What if this is, you know, what if, what if um, just something someone has said to me that I'll just play with that idea, I'll take it for a walk, and then I'll write down sort of the first things that come into my head and see, you know, well, what's at the heart of each of those stories? And each of those little stories, they're only, some of them are sort of 300, 400, I think the longest one is about 1,500, 1,600 words. So they're only really, really short stories. But it was finding something interesting that was at the heart of each one of those and trying to be playful with it, trying to trying to adopt a sort of playful attitude that I've maybe not had so much during lockdown because I found it more difficult to to be playful. Um, yes. And that's why I think yeah. doing other things has been really good for me. So doing photography or actually I've rediscovered um, my guitar. And so I've been playing pretty much every day since lockdown a little bit every day. Can you please share our, our, your guitar story with us? So when you say you've been playing guitar, I know that you've just commissioned a brand new guitar. Is that what you've been playing? Or No, so well, so, um, so while I've been playing guitar, I've been thinking about, well, what's important to me? And I've had, so I, I, I've been um, not collecting guitars because that makes me sound awful. Um, I've been playing guitar since I was about 13, 14, and maybe a little bit before that. And, and I've been in bands since then. So I've always had guitars and you sort of accumulate guitars over time. So I've got acoustic guitars, electric guitars, bass guitars. And, uh, I, and recently I decided what I wanted was a change from all of that. And I sold all of my guitars. I sold the last one yesterday. It was a beautiful, beautiful bass guitar, um, which I sold to a man in Charlestown. And, um, and what I've done is I've commissioned a um, I do, I do, I do, a guitar maker. Um, some people might say luthier. Um, I say guitar maker. Guitar maker uh, to make me my own acoustic guitar. Um, it was just after the lockdown restrictions lifted enough that I could go and see my parents. I went up to see my dad, and then I went across to see my mum. But while I was with my dad, he said, um, "He said I know you're thinking about getting a new acoustic guitar." there's someone who lives not too far from here who makes guitars. And so we made an appointment to go and see him. We sat in his um, his shed at the bottom of the garden and played some of his guitars and they just absolutely blew me away. They're just amazing guitars. And he said, well, I make one or two guitars a year and, um, you know, he's, he's retired now. He doesn't really um, make loads of guitars. He never did, I don't think, make, make that many but he, um, at the end of the conversation, after we'd played, I think he inter- interviewed me as much as I interviewed him. And he said, you know, I would be happy to make you a guitar if you wanted. So we went for a big, long walk around Lake Vernoy. And um, by the time we came back, I was like, yes, yes, I would like you to make me a guitar. So that is in production at the moment. Um, it Amazing. Ready, I don't know. I'm hoping before Christmas. It takes a long time to make a guitar from scratch. But how lovely to know that all of that 
time and thought has gone into the thing when you're playing it. Yeah, definitely. And it's something that I've wanted for, I think, for a long time was, is rather than a sort of mass produced thing, is just that I think what I've been valuing is things that people have made with their own hands um, right. much more. And I want something that I've got more of a connection to. I, I want a guitar that I will want to play every day. Um, and it's the sort of guitar that you have to play every day in order to get the, the best out of it. Mm, I think it can make a big difference that the aesthetic of something as well or the story behind it. I realise mm. I even have it with clothes. If it has a story with it, I'm more likely to put the item on and really enjoy wearing it, which is just so frivolous in a way. But it's um, but there's just something so much more meaningful to it. I guess that's it. It's having more meaning to it the practice that you're doing do you have a favorite item of clothing I do have a favorite item of clothing I I cleared out when I was 14 I had a very glamorous friend who'd moved down from London I lived in the countryside and her mum I just was in awe of this glamorous woman and she had a walk-in wardrobe and she paid me to clear out her wardrobe for her and (laughs) so I spent two days in like absolute bliss just clearing out her wardrobe getting paid for it as well but also getting hand-me-downs of the things that she didn't want um and then years later that woman actually sadly passed away from cancer and I still have one of her dresses and it's so old and threadbare now but I always love wearing it because it just feels like it means so much to me Uh, story that's lovely yeah I've, uh, so my editor, um, my editor is a man called Nick Royal, and um, he's an ace editor, ace writer, and he, um, I believe, because I read an article about it, he wears his um, his father's clothes. Um, his father, his father died a few years ago, and he um, he sort of feels that like a connection through mm. the clothes that he wears, through the hat or the. Um, or the, mm. or the coat or something and I can I, I can really uh, I, yeah I can I, I can I can see that entirely I think there is something I mean at the beginning of this conversation you were talking about moving between art forms and then bringing different elements to you and and I think that when you find that connection through something different that um being able to put on the different hat, not just as in another job, but also actually being able to maybe step into a different character or a different Mm. place with a different person or be able to kind of change your way of being can help switch up everything. And I'm just thinking when you talked about being playful again and using the guitar Mm. as a way to literally be playing something and then being able to come back to your writing and bring something fresh to it. Yeah. Yeah. It's quite a powerful thing, really, isn't it? Maybe I ought to literally get different hats. I think so, Will. Different hats so. for different jobs. I'm going to, after this conversation, I'm going to go and put on my put on my painting hat. So I, after all of these new creative forms that you found and changes to your work contracts and new projects that have come along and ones that have been lost, do you think your creativity or your creative practice is changed for good or do you feel like it's now going to drip back into a kind of normal way of practicing um i think that i think that there is real value in doing different creative practices and i i think because you said a little bit earlier you'd started to to think well i've got to be a writer and i've got to 
to to concentrate just on that. And I think that I'm, I say guilty, but I, I think I've done something fairly similar. I, I've, I see myself as a writer um, more than I do a guitarist these days because I'm not in a band and we don't have, we don't go into the studio. Um, but I think there is real value in going back to other art forms and like even like I've been doing, been sketching with the with 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 my kids. We when we watched uh, like the Grace and Perry art programs on TV, and mm. we all do like portraits of each other, and they're terrible. My portraits are awful, but there's I think there's real value in like learning to look in a different way. Right. Like when I so I I did I did a a, a quick sketch of my wife who was asleep on the sofa, and. Um, and actually, even though it was, a, it was a pretty terrible sketch, it just slowed me down in a way that I don't normally slow down and to look in a particular way. And I thought, oh, no, I bet there's something there that will feed into my writing. Like just that. Absolutely. I just feel like that it's not a zero-sum game. It's not like the more creative you are, the you know, you're using up your reserves of creativity almost feels like the more creative you are the more creative you are mm, yes I can see that it's I'm just thinking of the um in the artist's way the writer talks about the creative well and mm. filling your creative well and as soon as it starts looking like it's empty filling it more rather than letting it run empty but maybe it never can run empty and something someone told me a quote earlier I'd have to look up who it was but about looking at something until it has nothing left to tell you. And I really like that. I think I don't often take the time to kind of look very carefully at something. And Mm. it's what I've loved about doing drawing again is, is having that opportunity to, to really go into the details and find, discover the fact that there is more and more and more, which I think can be quite relieving at a period where it feels as though there's less and less and less, or there's mm. more and more change. Um, and I'm just thinking, yeah, to finish off, wondering, so you said that you couldn't read during this time, but for me, there's definitely been a lot of um, of observing going mm. on. And so you've talked about all of these various arts practices that you've been using or pulling upon instead, but what what are a couple of those unread books on your desk? And have you been watching anything during this time, or listening to any music or podcasts that have brought um, you through it? So I have. Um, so I've been I, I've been listening to um, I've been listening to audio books. Um, so I've been listening to uh, the new Hilary Mantel, The Mirror and the Light, which is glorious and it's really really well read and it's like i think there's like 32 hours or something like that of the audiobook um i i got it almost because a i love mantel but b it was a really long book and it felt like good value um uh, the, I love it. the <laughs> the the books that i've got on my desk um so at the moment the ones that i've got in front of me now is i've got um a novel by samantha Schw- Schw- Schweblin, Schweblin, I think Schweblin. It was on the Man Booker International um, t- uh, Prize 2017. It's called Fever Dream. And I am, um, it's only a very short novel. Um, I started it in January and I'm on page 66. Um, very good. So that's, so she, I think, 
she is a German author. And then I've got a book by a French writer called Annie Erno, um, which is called The Years, which is a memoir and the memoir of the period between 1941 to 2006. And it's told in little scraps and memories and um, they're kind of like tiny little vignettes that don't really necessarily follow on from one another. It's not a sort of storybook. It's just things that things that she noticed and I love it. Mm. It's absolutely brilliant. But again, I'm sort of dipping in and out of it really, really slowly. Um, and what else have I got? I've got, um, I've got the, I've got a collection of short stories by Heinrich von Kleist, um, which my editor told me that I might like to read partly because the city in which my second novel is set is called O. And uh, there's a novel by Kleist, uh, there's a, uh, I think it's a novella um, by Kleist called The Marquis of O. And he mm. thought, well, he, he, I don't think he's read it, but he said, I know that, um, uh, I know that Kleist wrote this book. Um, maybe you ought to go and read it as well. Um, because maybe there is a link that I don't know about. And maybe there is, but I haven't started reading that one. Um, so yeah, I, I, and and then behind me, I've got, I'm not going to turn behind because uh, you won't be able to hear what I'm saying, but I've got a, uh, I've got a, a bookshelf with my unread, my current unread books. Uh, and that has got, I think probably about 40 or 50 books on at the moment. And do they eventually get cast away once they've been read and filtered God, through? No. no, no, nothing gets, no, none of my books get cast away. They all, unless I, unless I really dislike it. And I very rarely, really dislike a book. The last book that I really disliked was, um, oh, uh, a, a book by Brett Easton Ellis um, called, I can't even remember what it was called, um, Imperial Bedrooms, which okay. I just found. I just found it vile. It was about vile people doing vile things. And, and did you finish it? Soulless. I did finish it. Oh. Because the person who recommended it to me, I, re- I, I, I have a lot of time for them. So I thought kind of almost in respect for them, I'll finish it. But I got to the end thinking, what a soulless, soulless book. And I guess that's the point. It's the point that he's making is, is about vacuous lives. But I didn't like it. And it made me feel a bit creeped out, mm. even having it on the bookshelf. So that was the last book I gave away. Um, at some point, I am going to have to give books away because all of our bookcases are on the first floor. And at some point, the weight of books will become too great. Do you know what? My bookcases actually did break during lockdown. I just got a new oh. rescue dog and I think I traumatized her for life more so than she already was as the bookcases went kaput. But it's something <laughs> I find really interesting is people, whether they feel like they have to finish books even when they don't like them and actually that is my one reason I will finish a book that I don't like is if it's for someone if someone has advised it to me or suggested it and I respect that person then I want to get the insight anyway but then otherwise I have no patience for it and it's interesting you talking about having all of these different books unread and on your desk and all around the place at the moment because I find that 
that has happened to me through this period as well. But it also is something that at different stages of writing projects, I find happens too. I think when I start being like, oh, what is it to write in this tense or in that particular space or in this country? Mm. And I find myself pulling books off shelves left, right and center and having dog-eared pages everywhere. Yeah. And I do, I do exactly the same. I And sometimes I'll think, oh, there's that there's that character who did that thing. I want to see how that writer did it. Um, and, and if I don't have them to hand, it makes that job a lot more difficult. Um, Absolutely. Or sometimes I just want to go, want to pull a book off the shelf and just read something totally unrelated to what I'm writing. And it usually feeds into what I am writing. Well, Will, thank you so much for talking with me today. It's been such a pleasure and I'm so appreciative of all of your insights and wisdoms and for sharing your experience with us. So thank you. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you too, Polly, as always.